We're on a mission from God. We're getting the band back together. Jake and Elwood are on a mission to save the boarding school that they were raised in. Being unable to pay the property tax, the school was going to close unless the money could be raised within a short period of time. And so the Blues Brothers took it upon themselves to raise the money to keep the school from closing. Since it was a Catholic school, they told people they were doing a holy work, that they were on a mission from God. And since it was a mission from God, they couldn't fail, they couldn't let God down, and they couldn't let the other band members who were hesitant in joining back to let God down either. The movie follows their mission to raise the money for the school. And I've never seen the movie, so I can't tell you if they raise it or not. I know of the movie because I had a teacher in high school who constantly quoted, we're on a mission from God, in his Italian brogue over and over again. But when you think of someone being on a mission from God, who do you think of? What do you think of? Perhaps missionaries come to mind, or maybe pastors, maybe youth leaders, or even Sunday school teachers. But does it extend to ordinary people, to the average Joe, to maybe the musician or the ex-con, farmers, manufacturers, stay-at-home moms, students, teachers, bankers? I'm not sure where the Blues Brothers got their idea that this mission that they had been sent on was from God. But they probably wouldn't fit the bill that you and I have as people being sent on a mission from God. Isaiah this morning reveals to us a mission that is actually from God in his word. Isaiah chapter 61 explains this to us. So I'll invite you to open your Bibles with me to Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 7. Stand as I read this passage of scripture. And as we look at this passage, we'll see the messenger, the mission, and the result. Isaiah 61, beginning at verse 1. Reading in Jesus' name. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins, they will raise up the former devastations, and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand with and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. And instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. And therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. Father God, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray this morning, Father, that you would sanctify us in your truth here today. Open our hearts, our minds, our ears to receive this message that you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Who is this messenger that Isaiah writes of in verse 1? The text gives us some indicators to know who it is. He says that this messenger had the Spirit of the Lord God upon him. This messenger was one who was anointed by the Lord. He was anointed to bring good news to the afflicted. Who is this messenger? Is it Isaiah? Is it some other unknown person, someone who is coming yet unnamed? 
looking at the immediate context of this passage, it's easy to see Isaiah as the messenger. The Lord had given Isaiah a mission to proclaim, to proclaim good news to the afflicted. And all throughout his book, you read this news. Yes, he has a message of God's judgment, but that's not all you read in Isaiah. You read a message of hope, a message of God's grace that continues to extend to this stubborn and obstinate people, a message of comfort, a message of restoration, and a message of hope. Isaiah is declaring good news to these people. So you wouldn't be wrong if you were to identify this messenger here as Isaiah, but you also wouldn't be completely correct either. One of the ways that we interpret Scripture is we let Scripture interpret Scripture. So the question we ask ourselves is, how does the rest of the Bible interpret this passage for us? And we see this passage show up again in Luke chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 4, a man is teaching on this passage, teaching in the synagogue of Nazareth. And this person who is teaching wasn't simply reading the assigned reading for the day, Luke writes that the person reading this passage opens the book, finds the place where this is written, and declares after he reads it, today this passage has been fulfilled, or this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. These are the words of Christ, saying, today these, this messenger has come, and I am that messenger. Letting scripture interpret scripture, the messenger written about here in Isaiah chapter 61 is Jesus, as he purposely found this passage, read it, and declared to all who were there that this is me. But what else does scripture say? Isaiah writes that this man would have the spirit of the Lord God upon him. Right before Jesus is reading that passage, if you look back in your Bible, you'll find out that Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted. And if you look back a little bit farther, right before he's in the wilderness being tempted, Jesus is baptized. And what was it that happened at Jesus' baptism for all the crowds to see? The Word of God says this, The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. The Spirit of God descended upon Jesus just as Isaiah prophesied it would. And Jesus is declaring here, and Scripture declares that Jesus is this messenger. And Isaiah further describes this messenger as one who was sent. Numerous times throughout the New Testament, we read that Jesus was indeed sent. He didn't come on his own initiative, but the Father had sent him. Passages like this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Or when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son to be born of a woman, born under the law. And by this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world. And I could go on and on and on, but suffice it to say, Scripture says Jesus was sent. Scripture identifies that this messenger is Jesus. As Jesus was sent by the Father, as Jesus had the Spirit of God bestowed upon him, Jesus was on a mission from God. And he declared it that day in the synagogue. He is the messenger. But what was that mission that he came to do? Isaiah summarizes it in verse 1. He says, to bring good news to the afflicted. Some translations might say poor. So we ask ourselves, who are these poor and afflicted people? Who are these people for whom Christ came? 
Jesus, or Isaiah, further on explains this mission more explicitly. He says, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and a day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. The mission that Jesus was on was to heal the broken, release the captive, and proclaim God's favor, as well as comfort mourners. This is a summary here of what Jesus came to do. There are some people that would come and look at this passage and say this is all that Jesus came to do. Jesus just came to abolish slavery. Jesus came to take care of the underprivileged. Jesus came to make sure that the needs of the poor were met. Jesus came to comfort all those who are afflicted by the ills of society. And so first and foremost, our job as Christians is social justice. There are some that teach that from this passage. But this is just a summary of what Jesus came to do. And though Christ does truly care about justice, and he is the one who will accomplish justice, and rid the world of all injustice someday. The mission that Christ came when his first coming to accomplish was so much greater than just social justice. Christ came to accomplish divine justice. And this healing, this comfort, and this release that Jesus came to bring in his first coming isn't just physical. We sell Christ short when we say it's just a physical healing, just a physical comfort, just a physical release. While Jesus was on the earth, he did come and he healed all kinds of diseases. He released people from demons. He wept with those who wept. He comforted those who mourned. But first and foremost, what Jesus came to do was proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to people. In fact, this is what Christ's first coming is all about. What was it that the angel told Mary when he came to announce to her that, hey, Mary, you're pregnant? The angel Gabriel greets Mary with these words, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. She is favored because the Lord is with her. And when the angel declared later to the shepherds at Christ's birth, he said this, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, a Savior has been born for you, who is Christ the Lord. And then the angels began praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. The angels are praising God that God had sent peace on earth in the form of this tiny baby. God's favor among men. The name of this child, Emmanuel. God with us. The good news surrounding Christ's birth is that God came to dwell among men, to bring good news. And that good news is the gospel, that Christ has come to accomplish salvation, and that he would save his people from their sin, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All these things are summarized by that little phrase, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. It's here in Christ, is what the angels declared, is what scripture declared declares is what Jesus is declaring in the synagogue that day. Whatever cards you're dealt with in life, know that God declares his favor to you in Jesus. That for you, this is, today is, or this year is, the year of the Lord's favor. I'm not just talking about 365 and a quarter days. This year is not just a literal 
figure of days. It's an extended period of time that right now Christ comes to you with his favor. But a day is coming and the day of vengeance will come. But for us today, right now, today is the year of the Lord's favor. God declares his favor to you in Jesus. Peace on earth, peace among men. That doesn't mean that the life that we live here on this earth is going to be a life of luxury and a life free of pain. It's not going to be a life free of disease and full of ease as much as we would like to think it would be the case. But it means in spite of these things that God's favor rests on you because Christ has come. God's favor rests on you because of the death of Christ. And Christ no longer deals with us according to our own sins, but according instead to his mercy and his kindness, which is evident to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So when tragic things happen to you, it's not God's punishment for your sin. Christ has already satisfied that. When tragic things happen to you, it's a reminder again that sin is still running rampant in this world. A reminder again that Christ is coming again and he will finally take care of all of these things and be rid of them to take us home to live with him forever. And so we say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. In the midst of those tragic things, the promise of God remains still. That Christ has come to declare to you the year of the Lord's favor. To declare to you good news. To comfort those who mourn. To proclaim freedom. To bind up the brokenhearted. And the end of verse 3 describes the hope, the comfort, and the freedom that we have in Christ. He says this. So they will be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. That he may be glorified. Oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Are you afflicted? Are you broken? Are you standing sturdy in and of yourself? Are you enslaved? Are you mourning? Listen to what Christ came to this earth to do. To make you righteous. To plant you to be an oak of righteousness. God's word says they will be called, planted by the Lord. No, Jesus isn't coming to turn you all into a bunch of trees. It's not his goal. It's figurative language here. But you would stand firm, steadfast, and sturdy in a righteousness that is not yours, but a righteousness that is planted by the Lord. Christ came to make you righteous. Luther explains this work of Jesus in this way with these words. He says, how does Christ justify mankind? By taking their sin upon himself, as John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And those who confess him to be that and believe that he carries their sins know him rightly. Justification in the Christian sense is not my work, my merit, my obedience to the law, but rather that I firmly believe that Christ has borne my sins. This is what Christ came to do, plant in you, make you into into an oak of righteousness, giving you his righteousness. He became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God, that you and I might have a shot, that you and I might be saved, to declare the year of the Lord's favor to you because of the finished work of Christ. He came to reconcile us to God. And so we are called oaks of righteousness, Because Christ has planted that righteousness in us. 
Jesus has accomplished this good news in his first coming. The fulfillment of Christ's mission, the planting of these righteous oaks, Christ accomplishing righteousness for us and for all mankind, results in the gladness instead of mourning. It results in praise instead of despair, beauty instead of ashes. These oaks of righteousness that the Lord plants are then used by the Lord. And they are given a job to do. Verse 4 describes that work, describes that job, describes them as rebuilding ancient ruins, raising up the former devastations, and renewing the ruined cities. So the question comes, what are these ancient ruins? What are these former devastations? The short answer is, it's the effects of sin in this world. In the immediate context that Isaiah is writing here, the people were going to be uprooted from the land. Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. The temple was going to be overturned. And why is that? You remember from Sunday school class, it's because God's people have closed their ears to the truth and will not repent and come back to him. It's a result of sin. It's God's judgment against sin. So the temple would lie in ruins. This rebuilding refers to God building up again. Building up again Israel. And not just the physical cities in the land. Not just the temple that would be rebuilt, which historically has been rebuilt, and historically they did go back to Jerusalem. They were given their land back. But for something greater. Those events would serve as a near future fulfillment to foreshadow a greater event happening, a greater fulfillment that is yet to come or that is happening now. The building up of the Israel of God, the people who believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, who are trusting in Christ for forgiveness, for life, and for salvation. When Jesus quoted this passage in Luke chapter 4, he continued to teach that the gospel goes forth for all men. It's not just for the people that are in the synagogue that day, but it's even for Gentiles. And the Jews didn't like that message. And it filled them with rage and they wanted to kill Jesus. Jesus is here saying the good news of God's kingdom is here. The year of the Lord's favor is here among you and among all people. And this message is consistent with the rest of scripture. In Ephesians, Paul says the same thing. He speaks of God uniting together Jew and Gentile through the blood of Christ, saying that no longer would they be strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens and saints, members of God's household who are being fitted together into a holy temple in the Lord. This rebuilding of the temple that happened in BC or 500 BC is a foreshadowing of this rebuilding of God's temple in which he is using believers to make into his holy dwelling place. And Peter says the same thing, only he uses the phrase living stones. Living stones being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. This rebuilding is calling people from all walks of life to salvation in Christ, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, as Christ is the good shepherd bringing his people together. This is the work that Christ does. Isaiah says, you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God, in verse 6. As Jesus proclaims the good news to the lost, to the afflicted, to the mourning, to the captive, he plants his righteousness in them through faith, through his word. 
And as Christ makes them righteous, he also gives them a mission, too. He gives them a job to do. He makes them priests of the Lord, ministers of God. And the Lord uses these righteous oaks to rebuild his people. And they do this by proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news that through Jesus, the Lord's favor is being announced to you. That today is a day of salvation. That the Lord's favor is here and now. The good news is accomplished through Christ. The good news is that God in Christ reconciled the world to himself. And now we are his ambassadors, ambassadors of Christ to declare this message to those around us that the Lord's favor comes to you when the gospel is proclaimed. My Old Testament professor's professor, so if you can put those words together here, my teacher's teacher, who wrote a commentary on the Old Testament, he's studied way more than I have. He makes this comment on Isaiah 61. He says this, When the gospel is preached and the sacraments administered, there Jesus is releasing people from the burden of sin, setting them free from everything that weighs them down, and there, through these means, Christ is gathering him for himself citizens to reside forever in the new Zion's splendor. This is the work that Christ is doing through the proclamation of his gospel as he has made each one of us priests, each one of us ministers of the Lord, as he has made each one of us oaks of righteousness. Today is a day of favor. Today there is forgiveness, life, and salvation in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the anointed and sent messenger who proclaimed the good news, who brought the Lord's favor to man, and he brought the Lord's favor to man by accomplishing the Lord's favor, by buying it with his own precious blood, by satisfying God's wrath for our sin. And his mission stands complete to this day, and the effects continue to be passed out to people. The good news of Jesus Christ continues to release from sin, continues to comfort those who mourn, continues to set the prisoner free and declares sinners righteous for the sake of Christ. For those who hear this good news and respond in faith, Isaiah summarizes our hope in verse 7. He says this, Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. And instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. And therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. And everlasting joy will be theirs. The results of Christ's work may not be immediately felt as we live here in this world that's still ravaged by sin. You probably won't feel any different when you walk through the doors after church today than when you first came in. You don't feel free from sin, maybe. Maybe you'll go home and you'll still struggle with whatever temptations come to you. And no, it doesn't put a band-aid on you and make you miss your loved ones who have passed on any less. And no, it doesn't remove all the afflictions that this world afflicts on us or this, that this, our own sinful natures afflict on us. But the promise of God's word is that we are, will be given a double portion when he returns again. God's word points us beyond the here and now to a greater fulfillment that is coming. He points us here to our inheritance, not one of shame, not one of humiliation, but of everlasting joy. 
when we realize that our standing before God is based on Christ and his work and not on our work or not on our performance as a Christian, we're released from whatever bondage of works that we want to do. We're released of the burden of trying to make ourselves approvable, approved. I don't know the word I'm trying to say. Release of trying to make ourselves approved by God because Christ has won that for us. We're released from the bondage of our sin. Christ says that he has given us victory over our sin. In Romans 7, even though we still struggle with it, we are victorious. Not because we abstain from it, but because Christ has delivered us from it. And therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when we're told about the hope of the resurrection, that he who believes in me will live even if he dies, that comforts us as we mourn the loss of loved ones who've gone on before us. How can this good news result in anything less than everlasting joy? Yes, we still struggle in this life. We keep our eyes on Jesus, the one who was sent to announce this good news to us, the one who came and accomplished this good news for us, and the one who continues to proclaim this good news to you and to me and to others, through you and through me. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you and we praise you that you are a God who has planted us to be oaks of righteousness for your praise and your glory that you have accomplished salvation for us, that you don't judge us by our actions, but you judge us by Christ's actions. Jesus, thank you for coming to declare the year of your favor through your life, death, and resurrection. Thank you for being Emmanuel, God with us. Father, I pray that you would help us to declare this message to those around us. Lord, that you would strengthen us for this task that you have entrusted to us as well, this rebuilding of your people that you would give us boldness as we declare your gospel to those who don't know you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.